Welcome to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. I'm Scott, and I thank you for joining us. In this episode, we will meet three musicians who thrive on the unknown. They are Ron Coulter, Brett Sexton, and Farrell Lowe, founding members of Cepha Loco, a prolific free improv group that lives in the moment and often has no idea what the next moments will bring. If you're wondering about the name, Cepha means delight in Turkish. Loco means mad in Spanish. Together, the words also combine the first two letters of the founding members' names, with bassist Mike Facey included. So, who are these folks? Ron is a classically trained percussionist and composer with deep roots in jazz and world music. Brett is an accomplished saxophonist, well-known in Denver's jazz and experimental music communities. Farrell is a guitarist with vast credits who defies convention and simple labels. He's appeared in this podcast before. They're all veteran improvisers who've accomplished a lot, yet they clearly have much more in the tank. Ron founded the group while on the faculty of Casper College in Wyoming, where he led a creative music series that brought musicians together from far and wide. Cephaloco has released three albums on Right Brain Records, with more in the pipeline. One of the distinctive things about this group is that they perform and record with no game plan. They let their collective sounds emerge. Another distinction is that they invite special guests to join them on these voyages, and the core quartet coalesces around whatever a guest may bring to a session. This chameleon-like quality means that Cephaloco doesn't have a sound the way most bands do. Rather, they become something new in each iteration. Their last two albums welcome trumpet master Hugh Reagan, who has been part of the Art Ensemble of Chicago, among many others. A planned future release brings saxophonist Vinnie Golia into the fold. And that won't be all. I got together with Ron, Brett, and Farrell to talk about making music in the right brain realm. You'll hear their voices in that order. I became aware of Brett uh, through a friend, uh, Ryan Seward, a percussionist. 
uh, who used to live in Denver and was very active in that scene. Uh, I was looking for some more people in the regional area to bring up to Casper for that creative music series that I was running. And uh, Ryan mentioned Brett. So I got in touch with Brett. Brett suggested that I bring him and Farrell up. And I said, well, that's great. Yeah, let's do that. So originally it was going to be a trio with myself, Brett, and Mike Facey, the bassist who was also teaching at Casper College, where I was for several years. And then it turned into a quartet with Farrell. They came up for a couple of days, we recorded, we played a concert, hit it off, made some really interesting music, in my opinion. And then we've just kind of kept it going for the last, I guess, two years. That was in spring of 2020 when we started. And we've done a couple of, of hits here and there uh, since then. And a recording session with Hugh Reagan back in December 2021. And uh, here we are today. From my perspective, it was just to improvise freely. No discussion, no plan, no rules uh, to do some recording and, and performing. Just wanting to collaborate and explore the unexplored. We pretty much just came in and set up our equipment and started playing. There was really no parameters set or anything. It was it was just dive in and see what happens. And uh, we kind of took off from the first moment and, and uh, everything fell into place from there. question that a lot of people have about free improvisation is how do you as a musician know what to do? Is there a set of rules? How do you approach being in that kind of environment, particularly in this case with one or more musicians that you may never have played with? The first qualifier of that question to me is the level of experience you have as a listener and as an improviser. As far as there being rules, from my point of view, my world, there are none other than the limitations of the instrument that you're interacting with. And even then, it's about being fresh with the instrument constantly. Even if it's something like uh, on that first concert that we did together, one of the later pieces that we did after we'd been playing together for a while was like I just played a C major chord and did some cowboy chord that just came, you know? And it was really interesting to me to see how that was integrated into the ensemble because suddenly there was something that is perceived as being known. But is it? You can have a pre preconceived notion of what that is and then you could step away from that. So that is the way that I approach any kind of improvisation scenario, whether it's solo or with a large ensemble, is what's the energy, what's the language, and what is my relationship to it?
How do you react to other musicians? Are there cues that you look for or rules of thumb you use to determine how you're going to step in and what you're going to do next? Sometimes you just have no idea what you're going to do. You're presented with a, a whole series of choices. Maybe the first choice is, am I the first one to start playing? <laughs> or, you know, if someone else starts playing, do I, you know, you have a series of choices of, do I also play? Do I play something contrary to what they're playing? Do I play something similar or even mimic what they're playing? Or do I play something that's completely unrelated? So you have all of these, these series of choices that you're making in a, in a, a split-second moment. And then as other players are, are also playing, then if you can hear what they're doing, also react to that. Or if two players are also kind of doing something, do I join them? Do I play something against them? You're in a spot where you're playing in the moment and it takes a lot of concentration to pay attention to three other people when we're in the quartet. But really no preconceived idea other than knowing that, that uh, you're, you're going to try and make something as musical as you can out of what's already there. Sometimes the most musical thing you can do is shut up. <laughs> that split second are you consciously thinking about it or are you just kind of trusting your first instinct I, I think it's both actually 
I think you're kind of splitting your brain to do intuitive things, but you're also uh, using the other half of your brain. Funny that we're talking about right brain records, but that you use use uh, your intuitive and your methodical part of your brain at the same time to kind of guide you to make those decisions. You're kind of always relying on both. Sometimes you'll rely more on your intuition and more sometimes more on your methodical approach. But I think it's a, a combination of the two. Sometimes you choose the instrument and sometimes it chooses to be used. I usually carry like two Swiss cowbells with me and they serve a bunch of different functions. So they can be used in a variety of ways, just like a drum kit can be used in a variety of ways. So it's not about using a cowbell per se or a particular instrument. It's about the musical context is generally dictating what I'm making a sound with. There's a lot of potential in any object that I use. Like, it's not just a one-trick pony. Like, you say cowbell, and, you know, people automatically think, okay, you just hit it, like, the Saturday Night Live skit. But there's a lot, like, a highly skilled improviser will use that object in a number of ways. So the object isn't dictating the sound. Really, the musical context of the group is dictating how that object is used, how why it's chosen. So it's a little more complex than like maybe the traditional orchestral percussionist kind of approach or schooled musician kind of approach to an instrument. And I think that's true for the any instrument, whether it's the saxophone or the guitar. Thank you. 
Farrell, I want to ask you about texture. So when I think of the music of Cefaloco, I never know what to expect from one track to the next. How do you determine how to use the guitar in its huge palette of sounds? I keep going back to the energy. The sonic environment will inspire me or direct me or move me or whatever kind of language that entails to go to a particular region, so to speak. Like uh, there'll be times when, I, when I'll be playing like fully electronic and it's like, I, I'm not even thinking of the guitar at all. And then like a split second later, I might want to hear just like a clean string sound. So I'll do that. So it's like, oh, I want this to happen, right? It's not even a want, it's just like, this is going to happen. You know, it's not even about desire. It's at its finest improvisation. You're out of the way. It's you're just the, you're just the conduit for the muse, so to speak. I would say, you know, similar to what Farrell had just said, and while he was talking about it, I was thinking about when you look at Farrell's pedal board, it's this kind of rounded board with these pedals all kind of stuck on it. And and it always reminds me of, of like a, a painter's palette, like that you would put your thumb through, you know, the, the little classic one with the little splotches of paint on it. And it's kind of the same thing. That is his palette. And I kind of think of mine as the same thing. Growing up as a horn player, horn players learn through jazz mostly. 
there was this point where I was like, how come when I get done playing the head and the solo that, you know, go sit at the bar and listen to the rest of the band play for the next 15 minutes. I always wanted to kind of be engaged with the rest of the band instead of, you know, playing my one part and wandering off. So I got interested in the electronics through that. I wanted to do some textural things behind people as they played and be more of an accompanist and, and be involved in the song as it, as it happened. And so, uh, you know, bringing that same concept to the free improvisation realm is, is kind of how I ended up there. And it's just that, like a palette, you have just an, a whole nother set of things to draw from. What I did as a percussionist was to serve whatever music I was dealing with. So I'm, I'm a classically trained percussionist, two degrees in percussion performance. But my studies were pretty generalized. So I wasn't a drum set specialist or an orchestral musician specialist. Uh, like Brett, I like everything. I feel like this, this music that we're dealing with here, what do you call it, improvised music or creative music, is sort of like the ultimate pinnacle of the music. Like if you look at like a progression of somebody like Coltrane's career and how his music evolved over his lifetime, it, it shows like that perfect pathway from very conventional jazz to free jazz. Um, and he was also known as a guy who was continue, continually developing his his artistic practice. So it didn't stay in one place. I look at a composer like John Cage, very much the same, even though he was an experimental composer in the beginning, very avant-garde, ultra-modernist. If you look at the path of his career and his artistic output, it was the same thing. It was a constant drive towards the new, the unknown, uh, you know, a forward-looking, never stopping in one place uh, sort of pr progress. I look at my career the same way, although I still play orchestral music and straight ahead jazz and all that stuff. This part of what I do is seems to be where all those other components come together, where all the skills that I've developed in all areas of music as a percussionist or drum set player or electronic dabbler, uh, where all these things can actually be applied Real, in real time, in combination, in constantly new and unknown ways. So it sounds like the unknown, exploring the unknown is part of the appeal to you. I think it's the essence of this music. So yeah, it's, I, it appeals to me, but I also think it's a primary, if not the primary component of the music. 
basically an ethnomusicologist without the, the credentials to show for it. I used to have a voracious music collection and I was I managed a record store for 10 years. I had customers who would come to Boulder from Montana and New York City to talk to me about making suggestions. I was one of your customers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it would be the kind of thing of like where that history of hearing all these different things. One of my earliest big influences was Carl Heinz Stockhouse, and that impact follows me to this day. I've always got that kind of a, of a historical context of what has come before in the music all the time. So playing with different people bring out those different histories, so to speak. And then it gives me a springboard for inspiration of where to go. As a kid, I grew up listening to Van Halen and ACDC and whatnot, but when I finally hit jazz music, it, it connected. It was a big thing. And then when I finally did hear some music that stretched out more like Coltrane's Interstellar Space and some John Zorn and some things, that really finally like locked in for me. I'm like, oh, this, this is what I've been looking for. And then of course, you know, it expands out from there. I, I, I love about every kind of music there is and try to find a way through improvisation, through free improvisation, it's a really great way to bring all of those together at once, really. Whatever the, the first music was, it was improvised, meaning that it, it was created in the moment. And if you look at most musical cultures around the world, particularly outside the West, all of those musics feature improvisation as an active element. So it's, it's only been in the West with printed ability of to, to notate and then reproduce print, uh, written music that improvisation was slowly 
removed from the music. And of course, we see in the 20th century that it started to be reincorporated into even that type of music and that broader musical culture. There's a good documentary out there that Derek Bailey did many years ago, I think in the 80s, and it traces improv improvisation in Western music. It's a good watch. And there's a, a book um, that accompanies that too, just to get an overview or improvised practice within Western music. You're not the first person in this podcast to make this point that improvisation had always been there. Western music actually took it out. Yeah. Well, Bach was an improviser and so was Mozart. And, and really any, any uh, church organist as far back as you can go, there's improvisation involved in, you know, let's stretch this out because the priest is taking forever to get to the front. You know, there's there's elements of uh, improvisation that go even even alongside our written music. It's just that it was recorded, in, you know, by writing it down. And Farrell, you probably know more about that. Well, you're absolutely right about. I mean, Bach was famous as an improviser, and the the notation came after the fact. Charles Ives is a great example of improvisation where he had the marching bands that were going through the city crossroads. You know, I, I mean, it's just like he created these situations where it has to be improvisation. And you take like, even like marching bands playing John Philip Sousa, if they're crossing each other's paths sonically in some physically or sonically, it changes the entire music. Or like what Eno did with uh, uh, Portsmouth Symphonia way back when, where they had, they would take like common themes, you know, like William Tell Overture, and then they would, they would have people that were very proficient and classically trained and, and they like, they didn't even think about playing that. They could just like put the paper in front of me, I'm ready to go to people who could barely play an instrument. And it's like, everybody and they're like let's go let's do it fantastic stuff you had the early music of jazz which is you know tons of improvisation like in dixieland and and ragtime and all that there's all kinds of improvisation that's going on because they're just playing they're like they're they're not thinking about making a record they were playing and shit happens you know it's like somebody falls down there's a fight the you know this pretty lady walks through the room all kinds of stuff can happen and that affects the environment the music changes and then it's like academia unfortunately and it, it, i really saw it start to come in in the 70s the very early 70s is when you had the bebop army of academia and it still exists to this very day of where it's like, okay, now you've got to play, you know, you got to play all 12 keys. You got to play all these standards. Here's the real book and you've got to do this and you've got to know the changes backwards and forwards and you've got to do that and you've got to do this. And here's the way Charlie Parker wrote it. Here it is written out for you. Charlie Parker never wrote any of his solos out. You have that Western impulse to codify and like early Delta blues, the same way. It's like, you listen to early Delta blues, there's no bar lines. There's 
amazing organic music. And that's like where Ornette blew people's minds in the 50s. It's like he heard that and he goes, oh, yeah, here we go. And then people like are rioting, like it's Stravinsky or something. thing about this group that I think is unique is that everybody involved brings like a real diverse background of music making from very conventional things to very progressive things and they they apply all of that when we improvise together and when we go into play and record we're not recording an album we're just recording what we do and then things get sorted out afterwards and then when we bring people into the group, again, I think this group is kind of special in that regard, is in that we are reactive and malleable and can adapt to what like a guest improviser brings to the context. The first time we did that, when we brought Hugh Reagan, a trumpeter from Denver, into the group, he brings a what I would define as like a combination of like jazz, free jazz and classical kind of improvising aesthetics. You know, he's a very technically accomplished player, very good straight ahead jazz player. And then the same with Vinnie Golia. And I think if you if you listen to like some of the tracks we did with Vinnie, and Vinnie's a different player than Hugh as well. And you compare those to the ones we did with Hugh, like it's not just that those two individuals are different, but I think the way that the group coalesces around them uh, is is unique. been listening to the music of Sefa Loco and the voices of group members Ron Coulter, Brett Sexton, and Farrell Lowe. Learn more about each of them, link to their music, and see today's playlist in the blog entry for this episode. That's at rightbrainrecords.com slash blog. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. You can visit us at rightbrainrecords.com. Farewell for now. Join us next time. Thank <laughs> you.